podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we talk about MS Dhoni on his retirement from international cricket. So I got in a guy who once shared cashews with him. Siddharth Monga, assistant editor at Cricket Info. Monga and Dhoni's careers have massively overlapped. And so I thought he was an ideal person to come in and talk about MS Dhoni, who, other than just being good, is one of the more fascinating cricketers because of the way he played his game. We talk about Ranchi, outsiders, keeping, Chennai, and just how much Indian cricket changed when he was around. Sid, take me through Ranchi. I mean, I've been to Ranchi. I kind of feel like it's a wild west kind of place with like one road going through the middle of town compared to, you know, the other parts of India where they play test matches. It's nothing like the other parts of India where they play test matches. And that one road is called very imaginatively the main road. (laughs) And you tell somebody, hey, I want to go to the main road and they will take you there. And because we're talking Dhoni, one of his friends who ran a sports shop is right in the bang in the middle of that main road. So Ranchi... eh, Ranchi is the capital of the state, Jharkhand, which was not a state when India got freedom. It was part of a larger state called Bihar. It was split sometime after Dhoni started playing. So it was split into two. Bihar was more, Jharkhand was more tribal population working in the, like a lot of our indigenous population is in Jharkhand. One of the states, Madhya Pradesh, Chhattisgarh and Jharkhand, these states, they have a lot of indigenous population and which was like a victory for these indigenous people because they were not happy with the urbaner Biharis ruining their idyllic place. But Rachi was the British people's summer capital in India because it was unlike anything that you've seen Rachi of. It was, it was cool. It was, it was almost like, it almost felt like a hill station to them because it was pleasant and it wasn't crowded. And ever since it became the capital of this newborn state, Jharkhand, there was a boom which brought with it all the undesired elements. It became crowded. There was unplanned development and it became what we see now. And I have never seen the Rachi of old. I've only seen the Rachi of, uh, post split and it has qualities of small town but because it's become a state capital it has this chaos thrusted upon it it's interesting and the reason i bring it up is essentially cricketers used to come from the major cities very middle class quite often i mean obviously capital dev came from outside of that but it feels like for whatever reason ms Dhoni, when he came from outside of that system it feels like he's almost changed the entire system by coming from somewhere like Ranchi, and then everything that has followed him. That's not just him, is it? it? Maybe that was going to happen anyway. But he was the biggest symbol of this change because even like Kapil Dev is like a big example. There was Suresh Raina just before Dhoni. There was Kaif just before Dhoni. But there was nobody who became this influential who actually might have set put systems in place for the team, not just to accept these kind of players, but also maybe to aim to find these kind of players. And also, you need to give credit to BCCI that around at that same time, they had started this process called uh, TRDO, Talent Research Development or something, where they actually started making an effort to go into non-traditional big city centers and try to develop players who were from the smaller venues. But we were still not there. I mean, just imagine the amount of untapped talent that that is there in 
rural India, which we have not tapped into. But there was a big turning point where he somebody comes from a small town and he's not aware of how the systems work. And people who are embedded in the system will always make it difficult for an outsider to come in. Hmm. Whereas he made it okay for you to be an outsider. We made it okay to not fit in as long as you were playing well and you were of value to the team on the field. You met him in 2006 before he was famous. Yeah, well, he was famous. He had, he had scored that 180, but he was not. He was known. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was so before I, he was Dhoni, put it that way. It was yeah, before yeah. he became the household name. From that point forward, did you ever really have any time with him again? On your own? Not more than, you know, when you're passing each other by just outside the nets or at the press conference and there would be a hello, hi, what's happening? He might tell you jokes, he might tell you stories, but it was not a very personal connect. Mm. Like you could feel that, okay, he knows I'm there. I don't think he knows my name. I don't think he knows (laughs) who I write for. He knows that this guy's there at the nets, this bearded guy's there at the nets and he follows and he asks these tough questions at the press conference, which uh, we want our media managers to avoid. But other than that, yeah. And if you were on a long tour and it was not a successful tour, and I've been on a couple of those, one in Australia, one in England. By the end of it, that pleasantness would sort of start to wear off. But like two months later, if you were on a next tour, there would be no residue of that. Yeah. When once you came across him, this is a great quality here to him. Media was not that important. And so that would, by extension, I would think many other distractions were not important. He's quite interesting in that, you know, you and I have worked at cricket for a long time. I don't know many people who know him who haven't played for Chennai. He doesn't have (laughs) the same kind of normal friendship groups and relationships with not just the media either, but even with people in other cricket areas that cricketers have. He kind of has a very, very small group around him in an almost, I can't think of too many other athletes that I've ever seen like this. And he's almost like he's a cricketer who doesn't interact with cricket that much. Yeah, and the one positive in that is he's telling you, I don't need to be on the onside of an administrator. I don't need to keep this person happy. I don't need to keep sponsors happy. I don't need to keep the agent of the captain happy. What I bring to the team is enough. And other than that, I mean, when you say that he doesn't interact a lot with players outside Chennai, even in Chennai, he's not that much of a known entity to his teammates. Yeah, When he's a captain, he you know how... Other players get just rooms and in the hotels and the captain lives in the suite. There's legend that his suite door in the morning, if you see the newspaper is outside the door, that means it's not available. But once the newspaper has been picked up, anybody can walk in anytime and have conversation with him in the living room of the suite that he is in. But still people don't know him. Mm. Maybe he is a reserved person. Maybe he's not comfortable with all that attention and he doesn't know how to express it. I find it very interesting in that way. He seemed to distrust the way that Indian cricket was run when he got there. And that was what your original interview was kind of about. But is that because he came from Ranchi and he had no contacts and he didn't understand? Or was there something else that made him distrust the way that Indian cricket was in that period? I forget the exact details of the match. This was supposed to be his first big match. It was, I think, a Dulip Trophy game or an Inani Trophy game where he was going to represent the whole... Yeah, it was a Dulip Trophy game and he was or the other Trophy game, which is either a four-day game or a one-day game between zones. So he was not just playing for Bihar now, he was going to play for East Zone. Well, I think the opposition was West Zone and he might have played against Tendulkar in that game. 
And it was a big game for him. I mean, everybody in small town building up to that selection, everybody waiting for that selection, whether he's selected or not. And somebody in his town, in his state, knew he was selected and did not inform him that he was selected. He came to know of it somewhere in the newspaper, by which time it was too late for him to make it. The purpose being they wanted the other wicketkeeper to continue playing that game and not this new kid from back of beyond. It was a very dramatic time where he hired a car which had a flat on the way. He had to make it like to Calcutta to just get there. And I think he ended up missing it. So these kind of things kept happening. And this is how sometimes small towns make you tougher before you get there. Because and one of his friends gave that example of the crab mentality where everybody is just pulling it down into the well because they can't stand you moving out of the well. So there it was. Maybe that's where it was... Uh, rooted in him that I'll have to do something really exceptional to be, but I will do it with my cricket because I don't know how to play that other game, which is to be on the onside of administrators, selectors or whoever. And what was the state of Indian journalism like back then? Because I find it quite interesting that there doesn't seem to be, other than perhaps AS Memon, uh, there's not a, like a generation of cricket writers that kind of folded over, if that makes sense. Bridge Nath, I suppose, is another one. There doesn't appear to be, if you look at cricket around the world, there's a fold over of older cricket writers from the 80s and 90s who sort of are still around. That doesn't seem to happen. So what was cricket writing like around 2006? I can see your face. I can't wait for this answer, Monga. I think the one big change that came around because MS didn't give journalists that much access before us, or just when I was starting out, I used to see journalists spend a lot of their time. You've come to a new city or a new country, you're watching interesting cricket, there are other characters around, but a lot of the journalists would spend their evenings staking out the team hotel, because that's where they would get stories which their editors made them feel were necessary. I was never comfortable at the idea that I might have to do it if I become like a full-time India cricket reporter. So by the time I started reporting, I didn't need to do it because nothing was going to come out of it. So you could spend your time exploring a new country, finding out other characters in cricket and writing about them instead of some petty politics story within a team. The difference is, you talk about how beforehand they wrote about cricket news and cricket politics, really. I don't mean cricket politics in the... Global scale. I really mean cricket internal nonsensical politics that, you know, he doesn't like him. And the big change seems to be that you guys, and there's quite a few uh, people out there like, you know, yourself, KK, Barrett off the top of my head, who then start writing about cricket on the back of that, which is actually very similar to what happens in the team in that the team stops being about politics and infighting. Dhoni has this big purge of rumours and the team start thinking about cricket and cricketers and you guys start writing about cricket and cricketers and that seems like a big change. And I know that isn't the case of all Indian media because you still have the guy who comes over midway through the test series to stand in front of a camera and yell. <laughs> but in my career, I saw that change happen. The change was afoot even like even before I came in. The Cricket Info had writers who had started to turn this around. There was Rahul Bhattacharya, there was Siddharth Vedanathan and... Elsewhere, we had Osman Joy coming in, which was also like Pakistan was also changing that way. Mm. I don't know if it was either a challenge because your access was stopped and all cricket journalism was access-based journalism and not cricket writing. Maybe maybe that was a challenge and we all adapted to it. Or maybe at that time, there was a boom in media and there were like mm. more opportunities. So maybe people saw an opportunity to do something different and they kept on with it. 
Let's talk about him as a wicketkeeper for a minute. So I think in your piece you said he wicket-kept for 200,000 international deliveries, which seems unfair on any human being's knees. I always go back to there was a really good story about when he was learning to wicket-keep because he was a goalkeeper, wasn't he, in football? Yep. And when he was learning to wicket-keep, his coach would put the motorbike behind him. And you can almost see that he doesn't wicket-keep like other people because he was trained <laughs> in a completely different way. He's just trying to protect his motorbike. Yeah, trying to protect the coach's <laughs> motorbike. So you actually see that in his wicket-keeping. And because of that, he kind of pioneered another method of wicket-keeping. So you talk about him sticking his leg out to try and stop the cut shot. There's also the fact that his hands don't have any give. I don't think I've ever seen another wicket-keeper use their pads as much as him. It's quite often very messy. I write a lot about wicket-keepers because, as you know, I'm obsessed by them. And we did a rabbit hole, and I listened to your podcast with Andy, which is very helpful in, <laughs> in research. But I always find him, like, he's obviously a genius wicket-keeper, but he's also... You could take a lot of the lessons that he had and give them to a better wicketkeeper and make them some, you know, the next generation. He was almost never a finished article wicketkeeper, was he? Like you, you could see it when he was standing behind to the pace bowlers. If there was a catch between him and the first slip, you could see he either has to dive, he's, he's never there. And after a time, his, his back started to trouble him. So he stopped diving. He's just completely stopped diving in front of the first slip or between him and the first slip. It was always the slip who was supposed to go for those catches. But up to the stumps, he was just completely something else, which I don't know. Is there a fitness-related issue with it? I, or I, maybe only he can tell. Mm. But I've heard that, again, there's like almost like urban legend that he doesn't even practice wicket-keeping. It just comes naturally. He just does it. No, but he he does. And I've heard he does a lot of work on his wicket-keeping, but not when he's joined teams. He does it in his off-season or when he's not with the team. He does it on his own. He does a lot of work on his wicket-keeping. He, and... You need like really strong wrists to be able to pull off the stumpings mm. without any give. And I've tried to see if he positions himself any differently. Maybe he stands maybe six inches further back so that he's already moving forward instead mm. of, you know, collecting it and then going back. But a lot of practical knowledge that he applied to problem solving is applied to wicket keeping. Yeah. And that, you see it. And, you know, we'll, we'll get to that more and more as we, we talk about captaincy but essentially like you know him deflecting balls and him putting his leg out and him not giving give all that sort of stuff people always talk about the magic of Tony but realistically it was the brilliance of his pragmatism in in all those different moments and you did that podcast on evolution of wicket keeping which was more of a wicket keeper's role and evolution of wicket keeping as an art like we haven't seen a lot of it no which is one of the biggest evolutions is what Dhoni did. Where they used to be wicket keepers. I'm, I'm sure Sadan and Vishwanath used to sometimes stump batsmen without taking his hands back. Another keeper might have done it on the odd occasion, but he completely turned it into like a clockwork where he hardly ever missed it. Whereas that's the risk versus reward in mm. the way you stump. Whether it's worth that extra half a second, whether it's worth the risk of missing the stumping altogether, and he hardly ever missed. Yeah, exactly. Talk about his batting then. I think he's underestimated as a test batsman because he was so much better at white ball cricket. Yeah. At home, he's good enough to be number six. Maybe not at the start of his career, but four or five years into his career, having played 30, 40 test matches, he was good enough to be a number six. And he showed it in that series against Australia. Uh, I think it was the third innings, which is usually where you lose tests in India. He scored that double hundred and took it. It was a series defining knock. In India, he had such batting riches, he was never required to play those kind of innings where he's rescuing you, but he was just setting up declarations, so you didn't see him. He was a very good player of spin, 
and even away on twice on that England tour, 2007, and again on the next 2014 tour, he was the second best batsman in the team. Yeah, I think because he sort of came on the back of Gilchrist, and Gilchrist had been so transformative, yeah. and Donny was so good in white ball cricket, we kind of expected Donny to be like Gilchrist. And it's like if you actually look at the raw numbers. Hmm. He's an all-time great wicketkeeper batsman in Test cricket, but I don't remember that ever being the argument. Do you? No, no. He's he's not appreciated for his batting in on those tours of England or even in South Africa. He had uh, like a very good ninety before which India had got bowled out for one hundred and thirty-six. So that's when the turnaround started on that two thousand ten eleven tour. His batting, yeah, you're right. It's not spoken about because there's so many other things about Dhoni that we distract ourselves with. It's his batting that doesn't get spoken about. So if you look at his place in cricket, so he's basically top tier Hall of Famer in ODI cricket. Oh, definitely, yeah. All time ballot there. That's not even a problem in T Twenty cricket and Test cricket. He's probably slightly lower down the pecking order until you bring in his captaincy. Now, captaincy is one of those weird things, and you talk about it. I wrote about it recently about how people think of him as this magic captain. And realistically, when you break down almost everything he does. The real magic of MS Dhoni is his ability to break down everything pragmatically yes. at all times. Yes. I don't think I've ever come across a captain, and Owen Morgan might be one of the few that I've ever seen, certainly of recent times, who have the ability to actually just think about the entire game in one moment and to take the risk only when being fully aware that you're taking the risk. Most of the times, he takes a risk when he has exhausted all his pragmatic options. Yeah. And before that, I would wanted to say that as a T20 batsman. He might be slightly overrated. I just think he played on a bit long. I don't think he was overrated in his peak. I think in his peak he was still a very good player. We think of him as this breath of fresh air because we lived in cricket before him yeah. and after him. I think there's a lot of people who haven't done that. And if you look at it, he was playing a very old-fashioned version of T20 cricket yeah, when and- the rest of the world was not. And to be fair to Chennai, they were still winning, so it wasn't that he was wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's just that yeah. the game had moved on. But maybe they were winning because of his other aspects. That he brings to the team. I mean, I know for like the last four or five years, teams were happy bowling to him in IPL. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, you could see that change. I want to talk about the most magic moment, which is obviously bowling Sharma in the final over of two thousand and seven, because <laughs> I don't think anything has ever happened in cricket that is more represented for what it was. Essentially, he did what most captains did, which was try and use your better bowlers early on. Yeah. And then he got called out because Harbhajan Singh was having a shocker. And he was bowling to Misbah. If it had been another batsman, he might have still gone on with Misbah, with Harbhajan. You're right, yeah. He did the most pragmatic thing that maybe he was ahead of his time where at that time people had not started saying 19 is the new 20, whereas now people are saying 18 is the new 19. Yeah. At that time, maybe they thought, Because it was the first year or second year of international T Twenty, people still thought maybe the twentieth is the most important over. Whereas now we're like, you should have exhausted your best bowlers by the eighteenth. Leave alone nineteenth. Don't you think before then, even in one day cricket, I kind of feel that by that point he was just following the trend more than setting it. But you're right. But within that, there's also the amount of times that you and I have been at games where he has been chasing. It's usually him chasing, and he has got so far behind the chase. So. The 2015 World Cup. Were you at that game? I was not there at the 2015 World. That no. press conference afterwards, like for me, that was the most Dhoni moment of all time. Where there's like it was at the SCG, wasn't it? There's was this ridiculous room where there was not enough room for all the human beings who wanted to ask Dhoni questions, and there was just people everywhere, and everyone was so desperate for him to give this big emotional thing, and he was just like, 
Yeah, we don't have the team to chase down that kind of total. And that was that. And the next question would be, yeah, but shouldn't you have done this? We don't have the team to chase down this total. And he just kept basically saying the same thing. And if you go back to two series that you and I were involved with, do you remember when they lost in England? Was it 2012? The test series in England. 2011? I was not there in 2011. I was there in 2014. Oh, actually, no, it might have been 2014 I was thinking about because you were definitely there. We did four end-of-match press conferences, and every time he basically said the exact same thing, which was... It's very hard to win in England without a seam bowling all-rounder. Yeah. Of which, of course it is. And the whole history of cricket, every team would like a seam bowling all-rounder. And it did try Stuart Binney, but you know what happens when you try Stuart Binney. We are aware. Stuart Binney recently played for Beckenham, which is around the corner from me. Well, he takes a 6 for. <laughs> but essentially, he gets those sorts of ideas in his head, doesn't he? Of, yeah. this is how we are supposed to win. And he tries to fit the thing around that. In some ways, he's got this reputation of being incredibly attacking. But in some ways, he's incredibly negative and defensive in his mindset. And I don't mean that in a bad way, because it clearly has worked for him. But you can certainly see that in the way that he thinks. Yeah, and I think in his mind, he thinks, I have only so much energy. I cannot expand it on everything. And what I need is, I want three fit, fast bowlers who are not going to break down, who are going to be strong enough to bowl good areas in the fourth spell of the day fifth spell of the day. For that, I need fit fast bowlers and these guys are not getting fit. So I'll have to like really get mentally and emotionally involved in getting them to get fit and maybe not select them if they don't get fit, which he thought maybe I don't have that amount of energy. Let me spend what energy I have on the other aspects that are going well. And if in test cricket, we get into a situation where we have an opening, maybe then we can just break through. But that's what Kohli did after him. Kohli actually went that extra mile and he said, no, guys, you're going to become those bowlers. Otherwise, I'm not going to pick you. And same guys, you just look at the difference in Shami's fitness mm. when he was playing under Dhoni and when he was interesting anecdote for Dhoni's time. So a couple of guys, senior guys, I can't name them, who were dropped from the side. And then stories started appearing. They're going to start new fitness regime, they've hired a personal trainer, they're going to come back fitter and stronger, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and he didn't say it officially on the record. He told somebody he knew, why couldn't they do it sooner? Why couldn't they do it when they were actually part of my plans? Yeah. But also, they might turn around and say, why don't you put your foot down? Why don't you tell us? Because we've been playing a certain kind of cricket till now, and the cricket is cricket in the world is changing. You could have also, you know, put your foot down and told us, hey, this is your last chance. And this is where he expected people to be mature and to be thinking for themselves. When the last dance was on, one of the big things that came out of that was Michael Jordan and the Republicans buy sneakers too. They made a big deal out of that. And I've been thinking about this a lot because Indian cricketers, Dhoni and Tendulkar and all these sorts of guys, other than perhaps Azharuddin, when things happen in their careers that could easily stick with them, they seem to be a lot more Teflon and the media seems to give them a better ride. Looking back on it, MS Dhoni was the face of a franchise that was kicked out for corruption. Will that ever stick to him? Because he never said anything about it. He wasn't really involved in it. You know what's happening in CSK today? Yeah. So somebody joked on Twitter saying uh, CSK was born to embarrass the IPL. <laughs> but if not all people still hold that asterisk against him, not saying that you were corrupt, but saying that, hey, you had somebody who was corrupt and who was running your team and you didn't say he was. Yeah. That's what CSK's defense was, that he was not running the team, which Michael Hussey unwittingly, not knowing what was happening, wrote in his book that <laughs> we knew of 
Gurunath Mayapan as uh, team owner and he was running the team for all intents and purposes and then he had to go back on it because the legal defense was that he was not yeah running the team I think you might have written the story and I was fact checking it for you when it happened and I was like we talked to Chennai players and they were like yeah we thought he was a bit of a yeah, doofus yeah. but he was introduced as part of the ownership group yeah, one of the yeah. owners <laughs> yeah I can't say that he knew it but there's a good possibility that he knew of team plans he knew of the 11s maybe not a day before that match but 10 minutes before the toss or 15 minutes before the toss maybe he knew mm. he, there was a possibility now again he's got this self righteous indignation where and this is only me guessing dhoni from afar where he feels slighted that you think of him how dare you even imagine i might have done something like this. so he just stops replying to these questions and he was there was a press conference before an event for champions trophy in 2013 where he just He just sat like a statue there because he was being asked questions about CSK corruption and he just sat there and smiled. Whereas he could have said he's not or he is. Yeah. We don't know what he said to the inquiry. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true too. He becomes this incredible iconic figure because of almost everything he does for Indian cricket. There's obviously winning the World Cup. I mean, we haven't even talked about the helicopter shot and all those sorts of aspects of him. I wrote a whole piece on him without mentioning the helicopter shot. Imagine how taken for granted his batting and wicketkeeping was. Yeah, and I think, you know, the fact that we've almost got through this again without it really coming up sort of shows he becomes an incredible figure for India, but one thing that you talk about is that he always made you feel like something was possible in a way. Did he change the way that you looked at Indian cricket? That team did because sometimes with Indian team you could feel even when they were in a comfortable situation if something happened you could feel hey they're going to lose that kind of feeling stopped once this team started to win and i don't think it's a personal thing i think it's overall quality now that you think more and more rationally it's not just one person doing it because the overall quality of the side is good there's less chances of messing up easy chases tough chases so because they could hang in longer than previous teams you got that feeling that these guys or this guy because he was the captain brought that change in how people watched indian cricket that kind of nervousness in a chase where you know you've got five wickets in and 50 runs to score and one set batsman gets out you would get nervous in india before this side came together and now that feeling started to go away and we finished with this you and i spent too much time in press conferences with MS Dhoni absolutely pointless hour after hour. were you there in Perth when Sam Collins had a hissy fit at him <laughs> yes why don't you do something why don't you fire a rocket under somebody's ass why don't didn't you he, didn't he say why don't you grab someone by the throat <laughs> yeah no i i think he said something i i feel like shaking you up and telling you yes your team is losing do something <laughs> something like that so we lived through that and we do see him as a pragmatist i think you and i are very similar i talked to barrat who obviously wrote his book he sees him in a similar way we've had to live through that our careers have overlapped with doni and we've been there time and time and time again then he releases this instagram video you talk about the poetry of he almost sees himself as a middleman between where india was and where india needs to be but also the instagram post and the clips that he used and the things that he clearly asked for shows a lot of emotion behind the scene so there was obviously something going on that he had to block out throughout his whole career because you almost never saw him emotional until that instagram post and even then it's him being emotional without him having to use his face yeah this is by theory that i think he was more emotional than your regular india player but 
he felt like he didn't need to show it and not cleverly or shrewdly for results or thinking that emotions might come in the way maybe he was not comfortable with how people will perceive him if he showed his emotion and this is like classic i'm going to show this final show of emotion but you cannot get back to me then i'm gone i'm going to put it up on instagram and then you just make your conclusions you want to say whatever you want to say i'm not going to interact with you on that i don't think he was a people's person and <laughs> the images he chose imagine somebody who has had this career and he puts a photo of him being interviewed by Michael Atherton so imagine how much it must have annoyed him to be interviewed by people asking him to explain yet another defeat or yet another win which he doesn't want to he never wanted to give out secrets it was all about the process which process i won't tell sid monga thank you very much for coming on thanks a lot pleasure Thank you for listening. You can't follow my guest on Twitter as Monga doesn't like people. But I am on Twitter. MS Tony is on Instagram. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere really or everywhere really. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So thank you all so much. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCarston loves your ears. And our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.